Well, last week, my family and I, we did a big road trip, and we drove from here down to North Carolina, and we stopped over in Pennsylvania for a couple days where my parents live. And so we had a whole lot of time in the minivan, you might say. I did most of the driving, and I've, I've done that route from New England to Pennsylvania many, many, many times. I almost have it memorized. But the whole drive through D.C. and Virginia and into North Carolina, that was a little more foreign to me. So, you know, there's lots of routes to consider. You know, how do we avoid traffic? What's the best way? What's the GPS saying? Lots of different turns to make. I, I was surprised to find out that many roads down there simultaneously go by different route numbers all at the same time. I thought that was just a New England thing. But we had a lot of choices to make, a little planning and, and thought. And we had to do some navigating locally, too. So have you ever been in a position where you haven't asked for directions from somebody, but some well-intentioned local person gives you their directions for how to get from point A to B? So it's, it's like, okay, so what you want to do is you want to go to the Wendy's, and you want to turn at the Wendy's, and you want to go down New Hope Church Road, or wait, is it New Hope Road? One of those. Anyway, go down that road, turn there, and then look for 70, right? So you, you're like, what are you talking about? This means nothing to me. I have no map in front of me. I have no knowledge of what you're talking about, but you smile and nod because you want to be gracious. So we had some of that, too, and I had to chuckle at that. Of course, what I'm going to do when I receive directions like that unsolicited is just plug it in my little GPS, and, and away we go. So thank God for devices in that sense. I have embraced technology there. But with all the directions, interstates, turns, all this, especially because it was foreign territory, required some thought, some planning, and some patience. But there were three simple things that were very clear about this trip. We were leaving Massachusetts. We were going to North Carolina for the purpose of visiting family and good friends. Those things were very clear. If you've been with us in this series in Ephesians, we've seen how in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has reminded the believers who are there in the city of Ephesus of all of their spiritual blessings in Christ. All that is theirs by faith. They have been chosen, called, forgiven, redeemed, in chapter 1, Paul has built from this focus on them, on the believers there in Ephesus, to a focus on the exalted, risen Lord Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. But then in chapter 2, he turns the focus back on the believers. And he explains a bit more about God's redeeming work in their lives. And so that's what we're going to explore this morning. Like our road trip, three things are clear in this text. The from what, the to what, and the for what. In other words, from what had they come? 
To what had God brought them? And then for what purpose? What's the purpose that God has for them? Paul meant this to be an encouragement to this church, these churches, these believers, and I think this is an encouragement for us as well. So toward that end, let us first pray. God, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that shines forth in it for us this morning. And God, I pray the promise of your word that the words you have given us will go forth and not return void, but will accomplish exactly what you intend for it to accomplish in us. And so we pray, God, that by your spirit, you would apply this to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So from what had they come? Paul starts with their point of departure. Where do they start? And we look at verses 1 and 2. As for you, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So fundamentally, Paul says that they had come from death. The Bible testifies in the early chapters of Genesis that death physical and spiritual, was introduced into this world in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. They transgressed God's law, his word. They decided for themselves what was good rather than obeying and honoring God's commandment. And so that moment introduced death into our world. And so as descendants of that, we too experience physical death because of the curse of sin. Well, what do spiritually dead people look like? Text says they follow the ways of this world. In other words, the ways of this sinful, broken, fallen world with its greed, its self-gratification, its sexual confusion, sexual licentiousness, Poor definitions of success and achievement, self-interest. The list goes on. We know the world in which we live. We bump against it every day, don't we? And all of those ways of the world, in fact, work in tandem and are fueled, if you will, by something else. By the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Or some translations have it, the prince of the power of the air. What we're talking about here is a spiritual realm, a heavenly realm even. But it's a realm in which Satan and his demons operate. But you may have noticed in Ephesians 1.20 that the heavenly realm is also where Christ now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling and reigning. And so how do we hold those things together? Well, it may be helpful to think about this as a succession of levels in the heavenlies. And at the top of those is the throne of God, who is supreme, ruling over all of it. 
Ephesians 1.21 says that the throne of God, again, from which Christ is, is reigning, is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. But even though it's a spiritual realm, it's not far from us. It's not far from our experience on a daily basis. Just like the kingdom of God is not far from us. Indeed, the kingdom of Satan is all around us. It has long been influencing passions and minds and behaviors of humanity through time. Many people are still living under demonic influence. Under the influence of the kingdom of Satan and his authority, carrying out wickedness, carrying out evil, distorting God's good intentions and purposes in order. These are those that Paul refers to as the disobedient, who resist the authority of God and his word. And they live according to the flesh. They live according to the spirit of Satan, this kingdom, this counterfeit kingdom, rather than according to the spirit of God. If I may borrow a phrase, Paul is saying that living apart from Christ, the condition from which they had come and from which we come is like living as a dead man walking or a dead woman walking. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the the payment due for our sins is death. Death in a spiritual sense, and death in an eternal sense, apart from Christ. And so living with sin, without the propitiation for sins that we have in Christ, who dealt with them on the cross, we are spiritually dead. Even if we live in physical bodies. And so what's the result of being in that kind of condition? As we see in verse 3, apart from Christ, we are objects of wrath. That's not something that we often bring up in small talk, is it? The wrath of God. We don't talk about this very often at the water cooler or even out in the rotunda. But it's biblical. You may be interested to know that this same word, the same Greek word translated wrath appears 36 times in the New Testament and almost all of them are in the same sense used here. God's wrath. Paul spoke of it. Jesus spoke of it. Certainly John in Revelation speaks of it. So this is a challenging concept, but it's biblical. And, and as we remember Christians around the world who suffer at the hands of extremists, those who experience torture, imprisonment, intimidation, beatings, death, those who truly cry out, how long, O Lord? They probably don't have such a problem with God's wrath, God's justice. Or if we think about the more egregious sins that we hear about in the news in our world, the sins that we do against Others, mass shootings, child abuse, tyranny. 
We don't have such a problem with God's justice and his wrath against evil, do we? In those cases, we don't want a God who's indifferent to sin. We want a God of justice. And that's what we're talking about. Then we look at our own lives, and it's a little provocative. It's a little challenging, isn't it? The sense of being under wrath. But we have to take this seriously. Apart from the righteousness that comes to us by faith in Christ. In other words, apart from that right standing before God now and eternally that Christ offers us, we are under wrath. Wrath is being carried out in this present age, but it will ultimately come in fulfillment at the final judgment in the age to come. For a sense, a a taste of what this wrath of God lived out in our midst, even in this age, we look at Romans chapter 1. People living under wrath there suppress the truth of God, Paul says. These are those who could know God because his glory has been manifest in the world, but they choose not to. These are those who willfully turn from him. These are those who exchange the truth of God for a lie, it says, and worship idols, created things, false gods. And for the sorts of behaviors that that leads towards, for the sort of experience that that road leads to, we read the rest of Romans 1. But Paul has to set it up this way, and I have to set it up this way for you to make what follows that much sweeter, that much more precious. Paul first wants the Ephesians to know where they were. He wanted them to know the from what, if you will. He wanted them to know that before Christ, they were in a state of spiritual death, condemned by their sins. But God. But God. Paul now expands on the to what. Read verse 4 with me. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, he says, you have been saved. So here we have a God of wrath who is also a God of mercy. And God, because he is God, can simultaneously extend both of those and still be true to who he is. And both of those things we see in the cross of Christ, don't we? The justice of God, the wrath of God poured out on the Son of God himself, absorbing that, absorbing the sins of the world out of mercy and out of love for us. In Christ, we have God incarnate who leaves the glory of heaven, enters the human experience, human flesh, dies in our place for the sins that we have committed. as we understand the from what, we can more fully understand the to what. 
Jesus Christ was the only one who could do this, who could accomplish this. Paul makes it clear that they have come from death and been made alive in Christ, just as we are, by faith. If we're not careful, or if I would say if we're not biblical, we're liable to understate what happens. We're liable to understate or misunderstand this transfer that in fact happens, this transaction, this exchange. British evangelist Leonard Ravenhill famously said, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead people live. Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead people live. But Paul stresses another point in this same breath. Paul wants the Ephesians to remember that this transaction from which they have benefited through faith is by grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor on you that you haven't earned, you haven't worked for, but you receive by faith. He says in the end of verse 5 there, it is by grace you have been saved. Then again, he repeats it in verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. And so church, this move from death to life is not about us. It is about what God has accomplished for us. This is the mercy and grace of God at work. And that mercy and grace extended to you, made manifest in this world, is most fully represented in the cross of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And as we receive that, we are under grace, no longer under wrath. So Paul wants to show the Ephesians and by extension us who now read these words, the from what and the to what. From death made alive in Christ. But it's not just a change of position. It's not just a change of scenery. It's not just a change of status. It's a change of status for God's good purposes in you. So last, let us consider the for what. For what purpose do we benefit from this transaction, this exchange? From what purpose have we been moved from life to death, from death to life? Our family's road trip, the purpose for that was clear. After all, I wouldn't subject myself to that level of pain stuck in a minivan with my kids for just a change of scenery. I might do it just for the barbecue that we encountered down there, but even that in and of itself is not the full purpose. The purpose was spending sweet time with some good friends. But what's God's purpose for us? 
Before we consider purpose, I actually want to consider position. Position. Look at verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What an amazing verse. That spiritually we have been seated, we've not only been died with Christ, been raised with him, but we now rule and reign with him in a spiritual sense as we partner with him in his kingdom mission. The Christian life is all about identifying with Christ in every way. We identify with the death of Christ as we die to sin, die to ourselves. We experience the resurrection of Christ as we experience that same power in our lives and as we anticipate the day when we will be resurrected physically with him. But this text seems to tell us that we even identify with Christ in his present position of authority where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And so God invites us in. God calls us friends and partners that we may live out his kingdom mission in this world. And as such, you have authority. Authority for what? See verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. Other translations say God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. And so you are God's handiwork. You are his workmanship. God has called you to serve others, speak the gospel, speak words of life to others, to bring healing to others, to be generous toward others, to feed the hungry, to do excellent work that brings glory to God. God has prepared these things for you in advance that you may walk in them. What an amazing thought. That God has laid these things out for you to walk in them. But they are not just your works. They are God's works through you. The point of departure point of arrival, and the purpose are clear. By faith in Jesus Christ, God takes us from death to life in him for his purposes as we live out our calling as his handiwork in this world. This is challenging for us, but the reality is that in our world and even in this room, some are living in death others in life. Some live under wrath. Others live under grace because of Jesus Christ. This morning, God, by his spirit, I believe, is drawing some to himself to cross from death into life by faith. And I want you to know, friends, this morning that to respond to God in faith this morning. We don't have to have all of our questions worked out. I don't have all my questions worked out. We don't have to have all our stuff together to receive and respond this morning. The point is that if we believe in our heart that it's God's grace alone that saves us, 
And if we believe that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and for mine, then we will be saved. We will be saved. Not only that, we will enter into this life that Paul describes as his handiwork in this world. If that resonates with where you're at this morning, in a moment we're going to have a little time to respond just to a song. And you might consider approaching God, silent in your heart, and praying something like, sorry, thank you, and please. God, sorry for the ways that I have sinned and dishonored you. God, thank you for the cross, for the forgiveness that you extended to me through Jesus Christ. Please fill my life and empower me to walk with you. That's a very appropriate response for some this morning. Many of us in the room are walking in life under grace. Thank God. And I pray for you too that you'll receive and respond to this good news as well, that the gospel is still good news for you. And maybe your aliveness in Christ in this season, maybe it's been, maybe you've been experiencing some setbacks along the way. Maybe Satan is after you. Maybe this world is after you. Maybe your own sin nature is getting after you. And I get that. That is our experience in this life. But even if that's where you're at, open your heart that God might revive you today that you may live alive in him, live out his purposes for you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you have made dead people alive in you. Thank you that you've made us a people with a future and a hope by faith. So God, as we prayed earlier, I pray that your word would not return to you void, but would accomplish everything that you intend for it this morning. Lord, stir us that we may be alive, living as your handiwork in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.